0: Welcome to another edition of Bartcast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. So these are stories that have that have shaped uh, shaped our lives, and at some point, as a preacher, uh, one is crossing over from being a spectator of the text one is proclaiming to becoming what Augusto Boal, uh, the author of The Theater of the Oppressed, called a spec actor, someone who is not just observing a story but is jumping into it and becoming part of it. This morning I want to uh, look at a another narrative sequence that comes from Mark chapter 10. So this is at the, the tail end of the section uh, that you all uh, did study in um, on Tuesday afternoon. <coughs> and to uh, start us off, um, I'll, uh, several of you talked about your call to ministry. This is a rather humorous cartoon uh, about how difficult it is to genuinely be called to ministry in, uh, in a capitalist culture where the gospel of the culture is constantly 24-7 playing on us uh, about what it means to be successful or have meaningful work um, and yet really the the gospel itself kinda of pushes back Get rich quick isn't much of a mission statement now, is it? John Hoey is a Jesuit priest here in the U.S. who uh, has <clears throat> uh, done a lot of work around faith and, and money. And his line here, we read the gospel as if we had no money and we spend our money as if we know nothing of the gospel, is another way in which uh, there is seems to be a dissonance between our faith, tradition, and the culture that we are in. Uh, So, uh, like it or not, this narrative sequence from Mark, uh, the second half of Mark chapter 10, uh, really is all about money and the gospel. And that is something that uh, makes us uh, middle class North Americans very uncomfortable. but after all, these stories are not just entertainment as Leslie Silko puts it. Uh, they are that which have the power to save us from illness and death uh, but only if we don't only if we aren't confused about them or only if we haven't forgotten them, as Silko puts it. Uh, <clears throat> so once again, just a little reminder about our own social Context: uh, the, These are graphs about our rising ecological footprint um, per capita, uh, and you'll you'll see how not only is there wealth disparity in our world, but there is ecological impact disparity, which is closely related to our affluenza—that we simply use a disproportionate share of the Earth's resources as, um, relatively speaking, high-income people and countries. And we also have a disproportionate impact, negative impact, on the ecological issues which are now stalking our history um, more and more uh, in a way that one can't deny unless one happens to be President of the United States. Um, uh, So you can see from the the graph on the right that uh, not only is greed unequally spread across the globe, but we in North America have the largest ecological footprint, and those of us who are economically privileged within our societies, we have the largest footprint of all. So there are issues of fundamental justice as well as sustainability. Uh, our way of life is not only pillaging the earth, but it is um, making life miserable for the have-nots, as Pope Francis put it so eloquently a couple of years ago in his magnificent environmental encyclical Laudate C. Si. That said, <clears throat> we have a tendency in our first world discourse around disparity to talk as if somehow poverty were the problem. But in light of these charts, um, one has to be very sympathetic to what um, M. Tamiki Nijara from Malawi said some 15 years ago. Any Christian stand on poverty needs to take into account the 250 references in scripture that condemn the personal accumulation of riches. Right? Najira is trying to point out that scripture never uh, condemns poverty. Uh, it uh, indeed has a certain bias of hospitality toward those who are poor. Um, but the prophetic um, uh, censures are of wealth. Uh, and he goes on to say, what we need to eliminate is not poverty, at least as the West understands it which would be an environmental catastrophe. That is, uh, imagining that everyone could live the way that we um, middle-class folk live in North America. What we need to eliminate is not poverty, but gross wealth. Yes, starvation, nakedness, homelessness are problems, but inequality is the problem. So when we, uh, probably for obvious reasons, when we talk about disparity in our world or in our society, uh, rarely will you hear people say, well, the problem here that's got to be addressed is wealth. <clears throat> what we hear is, we've got to somehow fix the poor. Uh, not, this is not the approach of this African Christian activist, uh, nor it, is it the approach of Scripture. And we are about to see that in dramatic fashion um, in the text of Mark 10. Now here's the image that we uh, studied the other day when we were looking at Mark's political cartoon um, uh, in Mark 5:21 and following, in which we noticed how his uh, portraits of the synagogue ruler at the top of the social hierarchy and the woman with the flow of blood at the bottom of the social hierarchy um, that that these were almost caricatures uh, in in the sense of how a political cartoonist would make social commentary. And we were looking at this cartoon. We're about to see another instance of that in this sequence. And the sequence that we're talking about here is um, a string of three stories that I like to call Mark's discipleship triptych uh, in 1017 to 52. And here is here's the triptych. Uh, it begins with the story of a rich man who is invited to discipleship in the same way, uh, I suppose, that Levi was back in Mark chapter 2, but who um, simply is unable and or unwilling to follow. It's the only discipleship rejection story uh, in Mark's narrative. So that's the first part of this sequence. It's followed by an interaction between Jesus and the disciples, which is in fact the last major interaction Jesus has with his own disciples prior to the beginning of the the passion narrative. Um, and <clears throat> this is a this is a story about how. Uh, Jesus is teaching one thing, and the disciples are aspiring to another thing. Uh, And the third part of the triptych is the story of Bartimaeus, who is the uh, social opposite to the rich man, who is also invited to follow in discipleship, and who says yes rather than no. Um, You'll you'll notice here, as I've uh, put this on the slide, that one of the things that knits these three stories together, is that their their literary setting are all identical. They are all narrated in a setting that is relative to uh, the road. Uh, Jesus is setting out on the road uh, in 1017. Uh, They are all walking together on the road in 1032 and they encounter Bartimaeus sitting by the side of the road in 1046. (coughs) But as you know from your translations, uh, hodas uh, is often translated way, because it has that double entendre in Mark. It's not just a path or uh, an old gravel road. It is uh, symbolic of the way of discipleship. So Mark is trying to signal to us that here are three uh, archetypal Uh, discipleship call narratives and he strings them together uh, in order to make a larger argument Um, now we all get to preach these texts uh, this year all three of them in three successive Sundays uh, through the month of October Uh, I take personal delight in the fact that the story of Bartimaeus in year B always occurs nearest to Halloween and All Saints' Day, uh, the Sunday prior to those feasts. Um, And for reasons which I'll hopefully uh, be able to explain, uh, it is the most important of these archetypal stories, at least in my biography. So I wanna do a little structural work here for a minute with narrative as you uh, are learning from your work with stories. It's always important to look at how stories are structured uh, and not just what uh, the plot and characters uh, are doing. Uh, So let's look at some of the larger narrative patterns in this section of Mark. Uh, Again, we're now honing a little further down with finer grain on how one outlines uh, Mark's literary masterpiece of a gospel. Uh, One of the um, long-recognized narrative um, characteristics of Mark's overall architecture is the fact that there's this section in the middle of the story that begins with the healing of a blind man. That's the blind man at Bethsaida. In Mark eight twenty-two to twenty-six, and <clears throat> that section concludes with the healing of a second blind man, that being Bartimaeus, in uh, Mark ten forty-six and following. This was actually one of the first um, recognitions of biblical scholars back in the nineteen-fifties, when they said, at a time when most people thought that Mark was just kind of this random collection of saying sources and Parables and healing stories just kind of slapped together, uh, and the, the whole agenda of biblical criticism was to try to pick apart the narrative to find its constitutive parts in the tradition. Uh, so so-called source and tradition crit- criticism. Uh, <clears throat> there were a, a couple of Scho- Markan scholars who began to say, well, wait a minute, there 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 does seem to be some some patterning here, some intentional. Uh, choreography of the storyteller. Uh, we're, we're seeing these these structures in the narrative, and and once they began to see some of it, um, they now had eyes to see more and more of it. And uh, so, just as source and redaction criticism was forged uh, through the study of Mark's gospel, so uh, has the renaissance in the literary study or narrative study of the Gospels um, been pioneered through the study of Mark. Uh, So Mark really went in the course of 50 years from being uh, the Gospel that was uh, allegedly uh, least intentionally structured uh to now widely recognized as, uh, as a sort of a narrative masterpiece. And this was the place where it first was seen, was... uh, uh, Here here are two relatively parallel um, healings of of blind men. I wonder if there's more structure to be seen in the section um, in between these two stories. Uh, And of course, once we begin to see that, we go back and we've already talked a little bit about the way in which the pattern of uh, repetition and parallelism parallelism Uh, deeply shapes the section just prior to this part of the gospel. Uh, we talked about the 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 parallelism parallelism of two feeding stories and uh, patterns of healings and exorcisms and so on, and the traversing across the the Sea of Galilee. So people like Norman Perrin uh, and others <clears throat> began to say, "Well, are there other patterns?" that we can see between these two brackets of these blind men in Chapters 8 and 10. And this is what they found. They said, well, yes, uh, look, there's, um, there's these three predictions uh, of Jesus' fate. Uh, the first one that occurs in uh, Mark uh, 31, the second uh, in Mark uh, 9, 31, and the third in Mark 10, 33 and following and uh... uh... that's that's obviously a pattern and lo and behold uh... more work went into it and they found that uh... well within these brackets of the healing of blind men are three cycles Uh, and the cycle begins with jesus um, I, i don't think prediction is a useful term of his fate i think this is jesus who understands the consequences of political um, dissent. Uh, So he begins to teach his disciples that this isn't just um, a Mardi Gras party here. This is actually, this journey uh, is going to have consequences, and these are what the consequences will be. Um, He begins talking this way right after the famous exchange with Peter um uh who are who are you, who do people say that you are? Uh and <clears throat> after the first portent, I prefer to call it of his fate, uh Peter obviously misunderstands what he's saying and rebukes him, saying, No, that's not what's gonna happen, that can't happen to you because you are Messiah and Messiah's Um, come in glory and live happily ever after. Um, That's not the story we're in, and that's where Jesus and Peter get into that famous tussle where they're literally silencing each other. Um, And so then Jesus begins to teach um, about the cost of discipleship in taking up the cross. Uh, And there's a there's sort of a cycle of walking up now toward Jerusalem and Jesus teaching. The second cycle begins with the second portent, which you see in this middle column of Mark 9, where again Jesus reiterates that this is going to be the fate of the human one. Now he's consistently using this third person moniker, which is taken from the book of Daniel, chapter 8 and 9. Um, Once again, now, there's a misunderstanding. In this case, um, it's the disciples as a whole community, just not getting it. Um, And then there's a long cycle of teaching, the longest of the three, that concludes with the story of the call of the rich man. The third cycle then commences in 1032. Once again, the community is now continuing to walk toward Jerusalem. They're now nearing Jerusalem. And Jesus gives the longest of the three portents with sort of um, gory detail about what's going to happen. And um, in response, James and John, um, unaccountably, uh, are caught daydreaming about what it's going to be like uh, to be promoted to um, wealth and fame in the kingdom. Uh, So, here's this pattern of a portent of the cost of discipleship. The disciples clearly not hearing this, not seeing this, Uh, and then Jesus going into a cycle of teaching that attempts to articulate this way of discipleship that seems to be so um, counterintuitive to our disciple friends. So I call this this cycle of three rounds of teaching and misunderstanding and reiteration a discipleship catechism, because in a lot of ways um, that's, that's what it is. It's Jesus using repetition to try to <clears throat> wean the disciples off their internalized um, aspirations uh, so that they can become clear about what the discipleship to which Jesus is calling them is all about. So here are some of the highlights of uh, Jesus' teaching. He's uh, calling them to take up the cross in the first cycle. He's calling them to be in solidarity with the least in the second cycle. Uh, And in the third cycle, he's calling disciples to embrace a life of service rather than domination. Uh, And you'll notice that um, there is the conditional subjunctive mood that appears in these calls. They are invitations. Um, but they're invitations that are sort of made to whoever might have ears to hear or eyes to see. If anyone should want to become my follower, uh, Jesus says in Mark eight thirty-four, um, for those who should want to save their life, Mark thirty five. Uh, Whosoever wishes to be first must be servant of all Mark nine thirty five. Um, Whosoever welcomes one child welcomes me. Mark nine thirty seven. Whosoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, Mark ten. 43. Um, so you see this, um, this, this very poignant change in, uh, in the linguistic mood uh, in which <clears throat> Jesus is realizing that the audience he's talking to, his own, the, the community of the people that he personally invited to discipleship, that community may or may not end up being the community that gets it. Uh, So at this point in the gospel, Mark is not just writing a story about Jesus and this group of um, first century uh, Palestinian uh, disciples, but he's really now casting his eye out toward all of us who read this story. Is is this going to be a story that we're just readers of, or is this going to be a story that reads us? ARE WE GOING TO BE SPECTATORS OF THIS STORY, OR ARE WE GOING TO WANT TO FOLLOW, uh, WANT TO BE A SERVANT, uh, WANT TO WELCOME THE LEAST? ARE WE GOING TO BE SOMEONE WHO IS ABLE AND WILLING TO EMBRACE THESE THINGS? THAT'S AN OPEN QUESTION uh, AT THIS POINT IN THE GOSPEL THAT IS UNDERLINED BY THE FACT THAT THE DISCIPLES KEEP GETTING IT WRONG. Um, keep sort of denying that that's the story they're in. So you can see this um, turning of the gospel uh, in chapter eight. Not only does the plot narrative turn and head toward Jerusalem and the ultimate fate of this prophet, but it's also a turning in uh, the discourse about the discipleship community. Are, are we? Are we part of that community? Can we really reckon with with these? sorts of, um, invitations. Um, and the portrait of the disciples, Peter, James, John, the whole lot, uh, really are portraits of people just like us, who have doubts, uh, who, um, secretly aspire to th- selfish things, um, who, um, <clears throat> refuse to, um, see what Jesus is trying to get at. And and so one sees the magnificence, the genius of this section of the gospel, this discipleship catechism, that it begins with the healing of a blind man who, and it's a two-stage healing in which he, he sort of, Jesus touches him once and he He's, he, now he sees, but the people kind of look like trees. It's a little fuzzy. And so Jesus has to touch him again before he sees clearly. And then you go through this three cycles of um, uh, consequence, sort of truth in advertising about discipleship, disciples' resistance and misunderstanding of it. Uh, <clears throat> Jesus' reiterations, yes, this is really what I mean. And it ends with a second blind man who is healed and now follows Jesus on the way. Uh, this, uh, this discipleship catechism is one that um, I would suggest not only lies in the middle of Mark's narrative, but resides at the center of the church's vocation, but does so extremely uneasily, um, extremely inconveniently. Uh, in many ways, these are texts of terror, uh, and so indeed, Lynn, um this this call, like the call of Jonah, is uh, is an uneasy one for the church. So I want to spend uh, the the rest of our morning really looking at uh, at three sequences which actually straddle this structure because narrative. Uh, sequencing can <clears throat> uh, be looked at in in many different ways. That's the that's the genius of a of a narrative fabric. Uh, the warp and weft of it often cross over. So the the sequence now this triptych we're going to look look at um, lies with the last story in the second cycle of the catechism, uh, and then the third the whole of the third cycle of the catechism. Now, not only are stories strung together intentionally um, to make a narrative structure, but also within episodes, there's a narrative structure. So this would be the concentric structure of the story of the call of the rich man in 1017 to 30. It, ends up, it starts out with a question about eternal life. Uh, then you... <clears throat> get this little exchange in the portrait of the rich man who can't leave his possessions and follow <clears throat> then you get jesus teaching and the disciples reaction uh, you have peter's exclamation that the disciples have in fact left possessions and followed <clears throat> and the story ends with the answer to the eternal life question being given not to the rich man but in fact to the disciples <clears throat> so let's let's uh dive into this story and if ever there were a text of terror to use Phyllis Tribble's phrase for North American Christians this is the one uh which is uh <clears throat> which is why we've become pretty disingenuous in our preaching um, at um defanging it there are two ways to get around uh texts one is to just not uh, include them in the lectionary, like the Garrison demoniac, Uh, but the other is to put them in and uh, learn to preach them sideways, uh, or to mute their voice, and this would be a classic case of this. This, by the way, interestingly, is often a story that comes up on Stewardship Sunday in our churches. A little bit of self-interest there, obviously. Well, as mentioned, the uh, action starts out on the way. Someone runs up, falls on his knees, and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? From this kind of direct approach, similar to Jairus, we can tell that this man is socially powerful. He wants something and is willing to give deference in exchange. That's all part of the honor culture. But interestingly, (coughs) uh, Jesus flatly refuses to return the compliment which immediately alerts us to a certain tension in the story. Um, This tension is heightened by the fact that although this man seems to have an ultimate theological concern, eternal life appears only here in this episode in Mark's Gospel. Uh, Jesus' retort strikes us as uncharacteristically conventional. Uh, What he does is he cites the short list of the Decalogue. Um, now this was actually a um, acceptable way of citing the Ten Commandments. Uh, there are four theological commands and six ethical commands. Sometimes rabbis would leave out the theological commands because those, um, the meaning of those was not uh, a matter of debate, certainly weren't, uh, wasn't a matter of debate for Jesus. The focus here is on the six ethical commands of Exodus 20. But a closer uh, look here reveals that the last command, um, do not covet, has been replaced by do not defraud. So now we are in, not in Exodus 20, but in Leviticus 19 again. This Levitical censure appears in a section that concerns socioeconomic conduct in the Sabbath community. Do not defraud your neighbor, do not steal, do not keep the wages of a laborer. Leviticus 19.13. So with this deft little bit of editorial midrash, Jesus reveals that he is more interested in how this man became so affluent than in his alleged pious claims. So let's return to the man's original inquiry. <clears throat> uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Inherit eternal life? <clears throat> and you'll have to forgive me, I just couldn't resist this meme um, that I found yesterday. <clears throat> the problem here is that the man assumes he can simply inherit the age to come. Now, the root of this verb in Greek is the term for a parcel of land, and we will soon learn that this gentleman indeed possessed many properties in Florida and New York and elsewhere. It seems that this man is assuming that eternal life, like property, can be inherited. Like so many beneficiaries of a socio-economic system, he, envi- he envisions religion as a mere reproduction of his own class entitlement. Or, as um, our American president said about a month ago, after the passage of the new tax bill, as he said to a group of um, um, moguls, "You just got richer." Now. In first century Palestine, land was the basis of wealth. The estates of the rich grew in a couple of ways. Um, Assets were sometimes consolidated through the joining of households in marital or political alliances. Other times, expropriated land was distributed through political patronage. But the primary mechanism of acquiring land for the rich was through the debt default of small agricultural landholders. This is how social and economic inequality had become so widespread in the time of Jesus and it is almost certainly how this man ended up with much property. The tiny landed class took great care to protect its entitlement from generation to generation. Mark has given us in other words here a concise portrait of the ideology of entitlement. And Jesus is clear that the property both create and maintain their surplus through what Leviticus calls fraud, the result of illegitimate expropriation of their neighbor's land. On the other hand, the kingdom of God, according to Jesus, certainly cannot be inherited. Excuse me. Uh, the man, however, of course, uh, comes right back, <clears throat> saying, oh yeah, no problem, I've obeyed all of these things since my youth. As will happen several times in this sequence, Jesus does not directly dispute this improbable contention, even though it flies in the face of Jesus' own assertion that there is no one good but God, which is what Jesus says when he's um, sort of rebuffing the man's initial compliment. Instead, and here's the really interesting part of the story, Jesus looks at the man and loves him. This is, by the way, the only time in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is actively loving on someone in this way. Uh, this is not John's Gospel here. This is, uh, this is Mark, the social critic. But here, of all places... He's loving this man, and perhaps he's loving this man because he's about to deliver some very hard truth. This is the kind of compassion that refuses to equivocate. You lack one thing, he begins. The verb here implies that actually it is the rich man who is in debt, in debt to the poor that he has defrauded. So now now comes the hammer. <clears throat> Get up, pleads Jesus, using the verb associated commonly in Mark with healing. This is a healing story. Sell what you have and redistribute it to the poor. In other words, this man must dismantle the system from which he derives his privilege. According to Jesus' jubilary logic, by redistributing his ill-gotten surplus, he stands to receive true treasure in heaven. This is a different um, word to describe wealth, what we might call the commonwealth of heaven. And then come follow me. Jesus is not inviting this man to change his attitude towards his wealth, just the way many of our churches preach it. He's not inviting him to be kinder and gentler in his wealth, treat his servants better, reform his personal life. He is asserting, as a precondition for discipleship, economic restitution in a system of disparity. No wonder we learn to preach our way around this text rather than through it. <clears throat> the man's piety suddenly collapses. Stung, he whirls and slinks away. Uh, The vocabulary here um, alludes to a text in Ezekiel where the rich are being sent away. And Mark explains why very matter-of-factly. He said he went away sad because he had much property. In the context of class inequality, Jesus' message of repentance means reparation, the Sabbath economics practice of redistributive justice. Well, it's not hard to see um, how and why this is a text of terror, particularly for those of us who, by any measure in global terms, um, have so much more than most people, including property. So now comes the very telling uh, epilogue to the story. Mark wishes the reader to know that this story means exactly what it says, Um, as if he's anticipating somehow that for the next 2,000 years, Christians are going to use every trick in the book to try to um, twist this story to say something other than what it plainly says. And so he, uh, Mark has Jesus drive the point home with a lyrical little verse whose point is sharpened with the razor's edge of absurdist humor. How difficult it will be for those with riches to enter the kingdom of God, ta. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God, tata. Easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. ka Now, repetition being the key to alienation, in this case. um, He says it once, the disciples are perplexed, so he says it again. And then, in order to drive home the point, he tells a joke. Of course, nobody's laughing. The joke about the camel and the needle's eye has, of course, been twisted by commentators. Anxious to avoid its sting. The most infamous attempt being the assertion that, well, actually there was a small gate in Jerusalem called the Needle's Eye, through which camels could only enter on their knees. Um, I'm wondering if any of you have ever heard that interpretation. That interpretation is a thousand years old. It was concocted um, during the medieval period. Uh, There was no gate by that name, and... uh, Camels don't uh, walk on their knees, but what a lovely way to get around the plain meaning of the text. The fact is that Jesus chooses the image of the largest known animal in his world and the smallest known aperture in order precisely to denote the impossible. Can't be done. Jesus' humorous sarcasm is captured for us by Frederick Beekner's contemporary analogy. Harder for a rich person to enter paradise than for a Mercedes to get through a revolving door. Or for Nelson Rockefeller to get through the night deposit slot of the first city national bank. There, the edge is restored in our social context. So. Jesus is clearly trying to say over and over, this isn't going to happen. Now, with each iteration of the point, Mark's disciples here now really encoding the audience response. um, The reaction grows increasingly astonished and culminates in their protest. Well, but how? uh, Well, in that case, well, who can be saved? Now, this consternation reflects, and and you might even be feeling some of this in your own breast at the moment. Such consternation, we need to understand, comes from our unexamined assumption that somehow wealth or power is a sign of God's favor. This is a perception that very much uh, tends to prevail, at least in American piety. In fact, Christendom has been so anxious that Jesus might here be saying something exclusive or critical about the rich, that we've altogether missed the fact that this terrifying triplet is not about rich people at all. Rich people are not the subject of this. These assertions, each in the indicative mood, are assertions about the nature of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is that time, that place, that social condition in which there are no rich and poor. Sabbath economics, Exodus 16. That's what the kingdom is about. Therefore, by definition, the rich cannot enter, at least not with their unjust wealth intact. Redistribution of wealth, reparation, is the only way in to the kingdom. These are statements about the nature of the kingdom. Jesus acknowledges that for us, the notion of this kind of social order based on fundamental economic equity, well, it just simply seems truly impossible. And certainly in the culture and religion of capitalism, any economic model or social model or political program. Um, that has been predicated upon redistributive justice has been considered the highest of heresies, beginning Professor Richards with communism. For the same reason, the Sabbath economics tradition that we spoke about yesterday has been the subject of considerable skepticism in the by modern theologians. But Sabbath economics was not a utopian prescription nor an es- eschatological hope. It was understood to be a practical hedge against the inevitable concentration of wealth and power in com- human communities. This, this kind of injustice is going to happen. The question is, how do we deconstruct it on a regular basis? <clears throat> Land was, be to, was to be returned to the homeless because the land is mine and you are but aliens who have become my tenant, says Yahweh in Leviticus 25. Uh, The dependent poor are to be released from debt because I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, says Yahweh in Leviticus 25. This vision obviously represents the antithesis to systems that promote wealth concentration. But Jesus is insistent not only that redistributive justice is possible but maybe on a quiet day we can hear that vision breathing as arundhati roy put it so famously in any case says jesus we cannot and should not talk about the kingdom of god without also talking about redistributive justice so again, no wonder this is such a uh, such a text of terror. At this point in the narrative, Jesus finally says, "Oh, oh, yeah, I get it, I get it." Uh, <clears throat> and he says, "Yeah, yeah, this is this is what we did." And indeed, it is, according to the narrative, what those disciples did back in Mark one, as we saw on Monday, and notice the same verb "afiami" that. Jubilee jubilee verb being used. As he did with a rich man, however, uh, Jesus neither confirms nor denies Peter's claim. Instead, he issues another one of those whosoevers, this universal invitation. Truly, no one has done this who? To give up private entitlements of household, basic productive economic unit, family, patrimony and inheritance, and land, Basic units of production. Remember that uh, economic map we talked about yesterday? He assures the reader that whosoever experiments with Sabbath economics will receive, not inherit, receive back abundant sufficiency from the new community of just production and consumption. Surplus is created when private wealth is restructured as a community asset. Jesus adds pointedly that this miracle of multiplication through sharing, already enacted in those two wilderness feedings that we looked at yesterday, will not occur in some remote hereafter. But now, in this time, and with characteristic realism, adds that this practice will invite Persecutions, you think? The matter of eternal life, however, that's left for the age to come. Now, in this moment, um, particularly with that notion of a hundredfold, um, we're seeing some illusion. On one hand, the answer to the rich man's question Well, the rich man didn't stick around to get it. Um, Mark illustrates poignantly, however, here, the conclusion of Jesus' most famous parable, the parable of the sower, uh, that occurred way back in Mark chapter 4. Chapter 4.19 says, The wealthy hear the word, But the anxieties of this age, the love of riches, and the lust for everything else choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful and yields nothing. On the other hand, for the ones who do hear, the seeds that fall on good soil, there is this promise of this miraculous hundredfold harvest. The divine economy of grace. And this story of the call of the rich man shows that that parable back then wasn't a pipe dream being offered to poor peasants. But actually the call to transforming the world through wealth redistribution. The promise of eternal life, however, well, that is an offer, a gift made to those trying to respond to the vision of Sabbath economics. The episode of The Rich Man ends, and the second catechetical section here concludes as a whole with a simple reiteration of Jubilee logic. Many that are first will be last, Mark ten thirty-one. The third and last cycle of the discipleship catechism again begins on the way the setting that is shared by all three stories in the triptych. This way is now revealed as headed toward Jerusalem. The snapshot of the discipleship community will be important to remember at the end of Mark's story because just as here Jesus goes before them and the followers are amazed and afraid, so at the empty tomb we're told that Jesus goes before the disciples to Galilee, uh, before disciples who are traumatized and afraid. Mark 16, 7 and 8. This last of the three portents now is the most specific in its anticipation of the passion drama. The human one will be handed over by the community, then to the Roman authorities, and after torture and ridicule, executed. Again, Jesus promises that after three days he will arise, the meaning of which remains a mystery to the disciples. Do they yet comprehend the way? this final episode of the catechism demonstrates that they do not and now marks caricature turns rather dark along with peter and john now john now james joins in the rejection of jesus way here mark has implicated the whole inner circle they look for forward to rather a messianic coup and therefore they're aspiring to first and second cabinet positions in the new regime. Jesus wearily um, asks them what they're looking for, and he responds, they respond, "Um, put us at your right and your left hand. After two cycles of teaching about solidarity with the least, You can almost feel Jesus' exasperation here. And in characteristic fashion, he turns the question back on them. Oh, really? That's what you want, huh? Well, can you embrace the baptism and the cup? Symbols in the story for the way of the cross? Here Mark cannot resist sarcasm. No problem, they say, verse 39. These Zebedee boys, just as clueless as the rock himself. Jesus then explains, one imagines rather wearily, that, um, well, the cup and the baptism, I can help you with that. But as for a promotion to power, it's simply not my department. I can't help you with that. This is the powerless Jesus, the Jesus who is powerless to give us our secret desires for self-promotion. He can only offer an apprenticeship of the cross. <clears throat> this, In this story, indeed, it will not be disciples who end up on Jesus' right and left hand, but rather two rebels at the crucifixion in mark fifteen twenty seven marks caustic tone now reaches its peak everybody jumps into the fray here Uh, they become angry with james and john probably because uh... the other disciples thought they were getting a leg up on them so jesus calls them all together verse forty two and says now you know how it is among the so-called ruling class their practices of domination, and the tyranny of the great ones. Here, um, Jesus is specifically talking about um, hierarchy in the Roman um, imperial order, the Gentiles lording it over. And then he says, um, with no amount of uh, small amount of bitterness, oh, but I suppose this is not the way that you do it. Right on the heels of the Zebedee boys asking for precisely that kind of power. Um, <clears throat> this is a this is a tough this is a tough moment. Jesus is um, he's not pulling any punches with his own followers. It's clear now that the disciples neither know what they truly want, nor do they understand the practice of Jesus. So comes the final invitation to Uh, whosoever, in the discipleship uh, catechism. Imagining a new style of leadership from the bottom up. The role reversal here between the great and the slave is a direct attack on the status hierarchy of the ancient world. This completes Jesus' challenge to conventional understandings of power. Personal, social, economic, and now political. Political. The alternative way is embodied by the human one who proposes to overturn the debt system once and for all by giving his life a servant who will buy back the lives of all who are truly enslaved, 1045. The the utter cluelessness of the male disciples in this discipleship catechism makes it all the more significant that from the beginning of marks story remember the healing of peter's mother in law in one thirty one who rises up and becomes a servant to the very end of the story at fifteen forty one where only the women remain it is women who demonstrate the quality of diakonia advocated here by jesus is Mark implying that in a patriarchal system only women ARE FIT TO EXERCISE LEADERSHIP? DON'T SHOOT ME, I'M ONLY THE PIANO PLAYER. IF MARK IS SUGGESTING THIS, IT WOULD BE THE MOST SUBVERSIVE PROPOSITION OF ALL, NOT ONLY FOR PATRIARCHY IN ANTIQUITY, BUT INDEED FOR OUR OWN AGE AS WELL. WELL, THERE'S ONE LAST POLEMICAL ROLE REVERSAL TO SHOCK OUR PROPRIETY and one more blind man healed to give us hope. On the outskirts of Jericho, the last stop for pilgrims on their way up to Jerusalem, you always go up to Jerusalem because it's on a mount, here we encounter a poor blind beggar sitting right beside the way. The story of Bartimaeus will provide a dramatic contrast to the previous two stories of non-discipleship the rich man, and the overly ambitious disciples. Bartimaeus will symbolize for Mark, the true disciple. So in conclusion here this morning, I want to tell the story of Bartimaeus, and it's probably going to take us five minutes into your lunch break, but then again, we started ten minutes late, so I hope you'll stick with the blind man here. Unlike the rich man, Bartimaeus is landless and disabled. He's a victim of the system, not its beneficiary. Unlike the disciples in the previous story, he dares not approach Jesus directly with his request. He inquires not after the mysteries of eternal life or the top posts in the new administration, but he only longs for mercy. Kyrie Eleison. despite those who would silence him, as they do in this story. The good old disciples are embarrassed by Bartimaeus because they're still living in the movie of upward mobility. While the rich man walked away from the call to discipleship, <clears throat> Bartimaeus uh, is... Anxious to um, anxious to embrace this prospect. So Jesus, as he did with the story of the woman with the flow of blood, gets in the way of his disciples who are trying to get in the way of Bartimaeus, stops the parade, calls Bartimaeus. He is called, and notice here again the verb get up, a healing verb. Same verb offered to the rich man. You can see how Mark is weaving these stories together. <clears throat> the rich man couldn't give up his many properties, but Bartimaeus gives up what little he has. The cloak that is the uh, one asset of his begging um, shop there. He throws it off, um, the tool of his panhandler's trade, Mark ten forty-nine and comes to Jesus. Now Mark intentionally parallels his petition with that of the disciples. Do you remember in 1036 Jesus says to the disciples, what do you want me to do for you? And they answer, oh we want to sit on your right and your left hand in glory. Now Jesus says, and what do you want me to do for you? This is Marcus so tightly knit this this triptych together, but Bartimaeus gives the right answer. Master, I just want to see again. The verb is an intensification of blepo. anableepo. I want to see again. I want to see more deeply. I want to see the way things really are. I want to have an alternative vision. You see, Jesus could not answer the rich man's question because the rich man would not make reparation. Jesus cannot grant the disciples' request to rise to the top because it is based on delusions of grandiosity. But Jesus can help this poor man because Bartimaeus knows that he is blind we're not talking about a physical disability here we're talking about the deeper aspect of denial and delusion at the beginning of marks discipleship catechism you remember that after the healing of the first blind man uh, peter jesus and peter got into a tussle because Peter was calling Jesus by his correct name you are messiah but peter resisted the way of the cross that to which jesus called called us in 829 now here at the end of the discipleship catechism bartimaeus follows jesus on the way even though he called him by the wrong name you see in mark's story the title son of david will be repudiated by Jesus in chapter 12, 35 to 37. But you see, it's not about what we call Jesus. It's about whether or not we follow Jesus. The first have become last, and the last have become first. The moral of the catechism, only faith as discipleship can heal us. So here is the triptych. Um, I know that's probably almost impossible for you to see, but you will have these uh, powerpoints in your folder on the pause side. But this is a <clears throat> this is a synoptic reading of the three stories in the triptych: the rich man's story, the disciples' upward um, mobility aspiration, and the story of Bartimaeus, with um, the various um, connecting. Um, rhetorical phrases. Uh, It's clear that Mark wishes to see this um, read as a whole. Uh, And again, um, you get to preach all three texts in October, and I hope you take the opportunity to to do so. Uh, Let me uh, conclude uh, on a more personal note since we started this session with you all talking about texts that read you and stories that save you from illness and death uh in Leslie Silko's parlance marks masterful narrative suggests to us that ultimately our comprehension of Jesus discipleship uh, of Jesus call to discipleship is not a matter of cognitive assent or intellectual mastery. It's not a matter of churchly habits or culture. It doesn't have anything to do with liturgical magic, nor of theological sophistication, nor of doctrinal correctness, nor of religious piety or being Canadian Christian nice, nor of any of the other poor substitutes for faith that we Christians have conjured through the ages. Discipleship is at its core a matter of whether or not we really want to see to see our weary world as it truly is without denial and delusion the tough realities of inconvenient truths about persistent economic disparity and awful racial oppression and ecological destruction and war without end to see that world as it really is and also to look again and see our beautiful world as it truly could be from the perspective of the Creator, free of despair and distraction, the divine dream of enough for all, and beloved community, and restored creation, and a peaceable kingdom. On a personal note, I have bet my life on the Bartimaeus story, as the name of our cooperative, as you might have guessed already, attests. It has been 40 40 years now since I helped begin an intentional Christian community in the San Francisco Bay Area, which adopted the name of the blind beggar, Bartimaeus. Somehow, it's my story and I'm sticking to it. Forty years ago, in retrospect, that was a wisdom beyond our years that led us to embrace the name of this obscure biblical character. Uh, Somehow we knew that it was part of an old wise story that, as Quakers say, speaks to our condition. I mean, what a name. Nobody can even spell it. And yet, we understood then, and I understand so much better now, that our relative privilege and affluence as first world Christians cannot mask our spiritual poverty. But if, like Bartimaeus, our deepest desire is to shed our blindness, then we are in a position to embrace over and over again Jesus' invitations to discipleship. And we can get up And get on that journey. You have been listening to the Bartcast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the Bartcast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening.